Thank you very much, choir. What a great joy it is to be reminded of what our God has done for us, that we indeed can celebrate it today. I want to continue the celebration as we consider God's Word this morning. I invite you to turn into your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You'll find that on page 961 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word of your own, we would love for you just to take that copy of God's Scripture there in the pew rack as our gift to you today. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll begin in verse 3. But I'm reminded, even as my brother Craig uh, shared with us in his narration, the great and wonderful words of those angels at that empty tomb, Why do you search for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Amen. Happy Easter. Our God lives. Our God reigns. Our God has conquered sin and death. And indeed, He is coming back for His bride. Praise God Almighty. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 3. Please hear now the Word of God. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now direct your attention to verse 17, please. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man death came, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all things, all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word in which we can now set our hearts upon. We ask you to come and speak to us mightily and boldly through your scripture. Will you please be kind to encourage the faint-hearted and the downcast, to embolden the, the fearful, to encourage the lazy, Father, that you would fire up our hearts, that you would cast a new blaze in us for our Lord, that we might live for him and for his glory, be faithful in his kingdom, knowing all of what he has done for us. We love you, Jesus. We're so delighted today. A good Friday has passed, and our long Saturday is over, and the dawn has come, and our Lord is alive. What great joy is in our hearts to know this truth today. No matter what befalls us, our God lives, and so shall we forevermore. Encourage us with these wonderful truths, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 
great hero of mine, the first American missionary, Adoniram Judson, set out for Burma in the early 19th century. He took along his beloved wife, Anne. Soon after arriving, they had a little daughter, and they named her Maria. Little Maria never really took to living in the jungle, as she suffered from one tropical fever after another. Anne and Adoniram consistently prayed over that little girl, trusting her into the loving and powerful hands of their God. It came to a point where Adoniram was called away on missions business. It was very important for him to go, though he was afraid to leave little Maria, afraid that she would be dead by the time he returned. But after praying, Anne insisted that Adoniram go. Trusting in the Lord, he went. It was on December 7th in 1827 that a ship's captain came to Adoniram, bringing him an envelope with a black seal. Though he had not read the letter, he said to Adoniram, I am so sorry to hear about the death of your little girl. He, of course, had heard of her illness. He, like many, had been praying for her. Adoniram, with trepidation in his heart, broke the seal and opened the letter. It read simply, My dear sir, to one who has suffered so much with such exemplary fortitude, there needs but little preface to tell a tale of distress. To sum up the unhappy tidings in a few words, Mrs. Judson is no more. It was not Maria who died, but his beloved wife, Anne, suddenly overcome by a tropical fever. It took Adoniram two months to return home to get back to little Maria. On February 4th, he wrote in his journal of that reu uh, reunion saying, I was unable to get any accounts of the child at Rangoon, and it was only on my arriving here that I learned she was still alive. Mr. Wade met me at the landing place, and as I passed on to the house, one and another of the native Christians came out, and when they saw me, they began to weep. At length we reached the house, and I almost expected to see my love coming out to meet me as usual. But no, I saw only in the arms of Mrs. Wade a poor little puny child who cannot recognize her weeping father and from whose infant mind had long been erased all recollections of the mother who loved her so deeply. Mrs. Wade turned away from me in alarm. And I, obliged to seek comfort elsewhere, found my way to the grave. But who ever obtained comfort and a grave? He's right, of course. Grave is not where we go to be comforted. We don't find encouragement there, but sadness. In fact, I think even hearing a story about a man we never knew who lived 200 years prior and we hear of the trial in his life, it's troubling to us. We see death, we hear about death, we get near to death and there is an ache in us, a sadness in us. We all know in our hearts that death is an enemy. We hate it. We do everything we can to avoid it. We buckle up, we take vitamins, we eat broccoli, right? Because we hate death. We want it to stay away. We don't want to die. There is something in us that cries out, this is not the way it's supposed to be. 
something unnatural about it. I think beyond dispute, it is true that death is painful. It is an intrusion. But what is in dispute is whether there is anything beyond it. Anything after death. Of course, many say no. Many will argue that death is the end. Many of those who believe that gathered in the Washington Mall a couple years ago at what they called the Reason Rally, where thousands gathered there to celebrate their lack of belief in God. 38 speakers in one day, one after another, to put it in my own language, spoke about their faith and having no faith as they mocked those who believed in God. Many would say there is nothing after death. And yet I trust you are not one of them. I trust you believe there is actually something that comes after death. That's precisely why we're here today, is it not? To celebrate that Christ has made a way for us to live after death. But let's consider that claim. I mean, it's somewhat of an outlandish claim, is it not? That a man named Jesus of Nazareth walked this earth and died, was buried, and three days later got up and began to walk and resume his life? Let's, let's think about that for a moment. In fact, I would like uh, to ask three questions about this idea of Jesus' resurrection this morning. First of all, why do you believe this outlandish claim that this man Jesus died and rose again? Can you believe it? Why is it that you are here today and believe such an, an outrageous and, and wonderful idea? Secondly, Does it even matter? After all, as many would say, is not the resurrection just kind of a symbol of the triumph of the human spirit? I mean, isn't it just important that Christ rises in your heart? Why does he have to rise from the dead? Number three, should it change the way you live? Is there any impact that should come upon you as you leave this room in a little bit and go about your life? The fact that this man 2,000 years ago, as some believe, rose from the dead. And so number one, first of all, did Jesus rise from the dead? Paul is going to argue that he did. In fact, he is going to give us three reasons or three evidences here in 1 Corinthians 15 as to why he believed that Christ rose from the dead. Now this is important because Paul didn't originally believe. Paul didn't want to believe. And yet some, for some reason he went from disbelief to believe. He became a totally changed man. Why? Well, evidence number one is the empty tomb. Notice verse 3, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so He says He died for our sins, and He was raised from the dead on the third day. But then He has that little phrase right in the middle, that He was buried. Why, why include that? What's the significance of that? Of course, if someone dies, you bury them, right? Isn't that, we all just understand that to be the case. Well, what Paul is doing is he's alluding to the, uh, an evidence that the church would talk about over and over again, that the tomb is empty. The body is gone. And despite those who oppose this new religious movement's attempt to manufacture the body to find it, they could not locate it. They could not find it. The tomb is empty. Of course, that in and of itself does not prove the resurrection of Jesus. But consider, secondly, the eyewitness testimony that he lays out here. 
Notice verse 5 when he says, And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. You see what Paul is saying is that hundreds saw him. Hundreds. He appeared to hundreds of people and they encountered him and they spoke with him and they touched him and they ate with him. And Paul is making a public claim in a publicly circulated letter written 16 years after these events took place. He says, don't, you don't need to just trust me. You just don't need to take my word for it, Paul says. Go talk to them. They're still alive. If you don't believe me, you could go inquire as to whether others saw him. In fact, he says he appeared to Cephas or Peter. And Peter would constantly be talking about his encounter with the resurrected Lord. For instance, in Acts 3, he said, You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are all witnesses. We've seen it. And so there is eyewitness testimony. Well, the third evidence is the sacrificial lives of those eyewitnesses. That they live these incredible lives of sacrifice Denying their own self-interest, bringing great suffering upon themselves. See, many people say, well, well, the church just kind of stole the body and they got together and they colluded and they made up this plan. Let's pretend that he rose from the dead. And that works. That idea works until you get to the life they live. Because they didn't, they didn't gain from believing this. They weren't blessed by believing in the resurrection of Jesus. They actually were tortured and killed because they believe it. And you don't make up lies that get yourself tortured and killed. And so in Acts 4, the apostles were arrested precisely for proclaiming Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Paul himself would take incredible risks and sacrifices to share this news. In fact, jump down to verse 30. Paul says, why am I in danger every hour? Right? Why am I in peril every hour? Why, why am I putting myself through this, he says. Verse 31. Um, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus as our Lord. I die every day. And Paul is denying himself to an amazing extent. He is being beaten and imprisoned and stoned and shipwrecked and, and has no place to lay his head and has turned his back on his career and all that he ever has. Why, Paul says, why am I dying every day? Because I want people to know that he is alive. In fact, look, at he gets very concrete, tells us what he's doing. Verse 32, what, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fight with beasts at Ephesus? Right, so he, I don't know, we don't know what he's talking about here. We have no historical account of this, but evidently, because of Paul's belief in the resurrection, he's actually getting in a fight with a lion or a, or a hyena. And Paul says, why am I fighting with hyenas? Because he's alive. And people need to know that. I need to declare that. And so Paul went around proclaiming this, as did many people. He sacrificed so much because he believed. You have an empty tomb, you have eyewitness testimony, and you have the sacrificial lives of those who saw him. One historian, English historian by the name N.T. Wright says, if there was only an empty tomb and there had been no sightings, people would have believed the body was stolen. If there had only been eyewitnesses claiming to have seen him, but the tomb still had the body in it, all would have believed they were hallucinating. But only if all these things were true, the empty tomb, the sightings, and the permanently changed lives of the witnesses, could Christianity ever have begun. The historians say there had to be an empty tomb. There had to have been eyewitnesses who, who, if Christianity ever began to be publicly preached, the idea that Jesus has been raised. 
So I want you to understand there's reasons to believe this. There's evidence for this. In fact, if, let's, let's just pretend Paul were here today. Right? Let's say Paul was the guest preacher today, which would have been a pretty cool uh, Easter winter. So you would remember that. Let's say Paul came up here and Paul's, Paul wants to talk to you about the resurrection of Jesus. And, and you know what Paul would say? I know what Paul would say because I've read his sermons. He, he wouldn't say, listen, you have to have an experience. He wouldn't say, you just have to believe, right? You just have to summon up that faith. No, Paul wouldn't say that at all. Paul actually preached to many, many, many people who had never seen the resurrection of Jesus and calling for them to believe. One such occasion is in Acts 26, and Paul's on trial. Paul's a political prisoner. There's a new governor in town. His name is Festus, and Festus wants to listen to all of his political prisoners, and so he brings Paul before him for a trial. There's another man who happens to be visiting. His name is King Herod Agrippa. King Herod Agrippa had lived his whole life in Judea, and he happened to be visiting this new governor, and so he thought he would sit in on these trials as these political prisoners would come and testify as to why they have been imprisoned. And so Paul begins his testimony before uh, Governor Festus, and he begins to talk about the life of Jesus, and he talks about the ministry of Jesus, and he talks about the death of Jesus, and everything's going well, everything's going splendid, and then he gets to the resurrection of Jesus. And it's at this that Festus says, hold on, buddy. He interrupts him. And the Bible says in Acts 26 and verse 24, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul... You are out of your mind. You are crazy. What is this about resurrection? Getting up from the dead. And Paul responds. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words. And then he does this. Then he turns to the king. King Herod Agrippa who's sitting there as Festus guest and says, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Festus, I'm not talking about a private religious experience. I'm not talking about some subjective feeling in your heart. I'm not telling you you just have to believe the history is evident. The facts are out there. This has not been done in a secret. It hasn't been done in a corner. And he turns to Agrippa and says, you know this. You know this king. You know that the tomb is empty. You have heard the eyewitnesses. You've seen how their lives have changed. Deal with the facts. Deal with the evidence. And at this, King Agrippa says, hold on. Are you trying to make me a Christian? And Paul says, of course. (laughs) In fact, it may be occurring to you, my guest here today, is the preacher trying to make me a Christian? Yes. Without a doubt. Consider the facts a man died and has given us ample historical evidence to rise from the dead. And now I know some people will say, well, you know, preacher, I'm very glad for you. I'm glad that Jesus seems to be working for you. You seem very excited about Jesus and and, uh, Jesus is fulfilling you. And that is great. I'm very pleased for you. But don't insist that other people have to believe too. Because Jesus might not fulfill them. Jesus might not work for them. And if you have a mind like that, I want you to listen just for a moment to what Paul is saying. 
Paul is not saying, I believe in Jesus because he fulfills me. But Jesus doesn't fulfill Paul at all. Jesus is a threat to Paul. He is a threat to what Paul had given his entire life to. All that he had accomplished. All that he had done. All that he had given himself. Paul said, I didn't want to believe in him. I was killing those who did. But I had to. When the facts hit me in the face. When I saw the resurrected Lord. You see, we're all in the same boat as Agrippa. And Paul says, account for the facts. It's not whether Jesus is helpful for you. It's not whether Jesus makes you a better person or gives you hope in, the, in your life. Did this man rise from the dead? Did that happen? Is that true? We have to come to grips with he either did or he did not. It is a historical faith. And I don't know how you account for hundreds of Orthodox Jews, Orthodox Jews who started worshiping a man. And they said rose from the dead. I don't know how you account for a tomb that's empty. The body is gone forever. I don't know how you account for the hundreds who are proclaiming the resurrection. Not because they gain anything from it. But actually receive great suffering for it. What possible alternative explanation is there for the facts? Think. It's not about what's going on in your heart. What's going on in your brain. This is not blind faith. Christianity is not blind faith. It is not calling you just, you just have to believe. It is saying, look at what Christ has laid out for us. Look at the evidence. It is reasoned faith. Now, I, I understand that this is supposed to be a day of celebration. And I'm being very logical here. And very rational. And I know everyone's here. They just want to feel good. And, and, the, and the, you know, the long winter's over. And the flowers are blooming. And we're all wearing pastels. And we all, right, we, we just kind of tell us some stories that make us feel good. And maybe we'll chuckle for a little bit. We'll all leave the room kind of feeling toasty and, and nice and, and happy. And friends, I just don't think that's what Easter's about. Sorry to disappoint you. I read the accounts, and when they encountered Jesus, they did not feel warm and toasty. They fell on their face in awe and wonder, and their lives were changed. I'd much rather your life be changed forever than for you to have a fleeting feeling of happiness. What happened on that Easter morning? Do you believe? I believe. I've considered the evidence, and I believe. Anyone else here believe? So what did it accomplish? Okay, let's say Jesus rose from the dead, which the Bible clearly, I think, proves. So, I mean, is it just, is, is Jesus just saying, let me, you guys think you've seen something so far, and let me show you something really good. I'm going to die, and then I'll come back from it. Is he just flexing his muscles? Is it a naked display of power? Right? Is it just fireworks where we just stand back and go, ooh, the resurrection? No. In fact, this whole chapter 15 is Paul's argument of what the resurrection has done. And you're going to see logic throughout. If this happened, then this happened. If Christ rose from the dead, then this. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then this. And it's over and over and over again. And I just want to give you two, two uh, realities that the resurrection of Christ has brought to us. Two things that the resurrection has accomplished. First of all, because of the resurrection, because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, our sins are forgiven. Christian's sins are forgiven. Anyone's sins can be forgiven. Note verse 16. For if the dead in Christ are raised, for, excuse me, for the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And so he says, if Christ is not raised, there's no forgiveness. 
you're still under the condemnation of God. If Christ is still in the ground, then you and I are still in our sins. Now, this is kind of confusing to us because we've been taught uh, throughout Scripture that Christ died for our sins. And so his death was, was to pay the penalty for our sins as our substitute. Uh, and not, we've never been really taught, well we have been, but not as clearly that he was raised for the forgiveness of our sins. Note verse 3, we've already looked at this. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. So his death is a punishment for our sins. That raises the question, then why am I still in my sins if he hasn't been raised? Right? It's his death that paid for my sins. What is the connection between the resurrection of Christ and the forgiveness of sins? In order to understand that, you need to understand the connection between death and sin. You see, death is a punishment for sin. It's not what God intended for this world. God has punished sinners through death. Now, if Jesus dies and doesn't rise, the punishment remains. The punishment's still there. And therefore, sin is still there. Sin has not been dealt with. Sin is not forgiven. For instance, I mean, if you, if you go to prison, how do you know your debt's paid? Right? Well, the, the jail doors opens, and they say, you may go, and you walk out. So how do we know forgiveness of sin has been paid? Well, the, the stones roll away, right? And he just walked out. Because the payment has been made. He, he, has, he has done all that is required for us to be forgiven. We even sing about love's redeeming work is done. Fought the fight, the battle won. Death in vain forbids him rise. Christ has opened paradise. Right? Death can't keep him. In vain it says stay. And Jesus says, no, sin has been dealt with. I will not be punished any longer. His resurrection shows that sin has been dealt with. Our victory is assured. Condemnation is over. Jesus' resurrection shows that the debt has been paid in full. Therefore, death has no power on Him and those who are in Him. Happy Easter. Christ is risen. Your sins are forgiven. He is taking care of them. Now, if you don't have sins, this may not be that good of news for you, right? You just may yawn, okay, whatever. And if you think that you just go one day, go before God, and God says, well, I'm glad you're here. Come on in. We've been waiting for you. And then forgiveness of sins doesn't really matter. But if you know in your heart, which I think you do, that you have sin, that you don't even keep your own standard that you set for yourself, let alone God's standard, if you understand that God is holy, awesome, terrifying. You'll begin to appreciate this forgiveness a little bit more. That God has made a way not for you to pay off your debt, because you can't. But Christ will pay for it. Son, coming to this earth, living a perfect life, dying on a cross, to take your sin upon Him, to take that punishment, raised in victory over sin, victory over death. You know what the Bible says? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. This Easter Sunday, you can be saved. If you will just bow your knee to King Jesus in faith. For us Christians, I think this is very helpful for us. That we ought not to let sin accuse us. We not, ought not to let our past accuse us. If Jesus is raised, our debt for our sin has been paid. 
And one pastor illustrates it this way. Imagine you bought something and you're taking it out of the store and, and you walk through that door and all of a sudden sirens start going off and lights start flashing and security personnel ascend, descend upon you and they say, what do you think you're doing with that? And you say, well, I've paid for it. And they say, prove it. And you reach into your pocket and you pull out your receipt and you say, trouble me no more. It is paid for. Paid in full. Get out of my face. I'm going home. This is mine. Right? That's your proof that you have paid for it. Well, the resurrection of Christ, if you will, is your receipt. If the death of Jesus pays for our sin, the resurrection is proof that it has been paid. And when accusations come, and when you hear that voice in your heart saying, do you know what you just thought about? Do you know what you just did? How can a holy God love you? You better go away from God for a little while. You better run and hide for a little while when that voice comes and says, how can God love you? When you live the life that you... If people knew what you did in secret. And when you hear that voice, you take out your receipt. You take out the resurrection of Christ and say, Trouble me no more. I am paid for. I am free and clear. I have been bought by Christ. And you show that to yourself. You focus on the resurrection of Christ. Well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Christ is raised and our sins are forgiven. But the amazing thing is that the resurrection of Jesus just doesn't simply prove something is over, something's been taken care of. It shows us something has begun. And so the second reality that the resurrection of Jesus has brought is that if we are in Christ, because Jesus has been raised, we can live forever. Look in verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep... In uh, then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Well, look in verse 17. Excuse me. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sin, then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So he says, if Jesus has not been raised, death wins. Hope is vain. In the verse 18, he says, those who have already died, they just perished. And you and I are naive and gullible fools. Because we are trusting in the rotting corpse of a 2,000-year-old rabbi buried in some Middle Eastern tomb. If Christ has not been raised, all the dead have perished. They're all in a hole in the ground, and a hole in the ground is not a better place. In fact, Paul says you're pitiful fools. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised, the world should pity us. But look at verse 20. But... In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so Christ has been raised. And as His resurrection, He is the first fruits. Now the first fruit is the first picking of the harvest to prove that there is a harvest to come. So when Christ is raised as the first fruits, it proves that others will follow Him in that resurrection. Look in verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. There's that word again. Then at His coming, those who belong to Christ will follow Him in that resurrection. And so if you believe in Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, if He is your Lord, you will be receive a resurrection like Jesus. In fact, I love how Paul puts it over and over again. He says the dead are just like they've fallen asleep. Right? They're, they're, they're just... 
they're just taking a nap, right? They got their blankie, they're just going to lie down for a little bit, and, and their body's there asleep, and their soul is up with God, and one day their body's going to rise as their soul is reunited with their body, but this time their body will be transformed into a glorified, sinless, perfect body living in the new earth in which God has fully redeemed forever and ever. You will be raised. You will live forever. When? Verse 24. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. In the end, He says, Christ is coming back. And He's going to straighten everything out. You see, there is a world of truth and majesty. There is a world of of justice and joy. There's a world where nothing grows old, that nothing dies, a world of fullness, a world of overflowing. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't just fireworks. It was this first fruits. Let me show you what the world will be like. He's punching a hole through the veil that separates these two worlds. It's partial. It's only for the first, but it's real fruit. This is really what life will be like. And one day He will come to finish it. And you, Christians, shall live in a place with no more tears, pain, sin, death, no more lies, no more evil, no more funerals. Happy Easter. Christ has risen. And you who belong to Jesus will live forever in His kingdom. Of course, that will happen in the end. What about right now? What happens when we leave this room? How should this change us? Well, look in verse 58. Now, we're skipping really 57 verses, which is all argument after argument as to the meaning of Christ's resurrection. He gets to verse 58, and finally he says, therefore. Finally, he gives us an application. How should this change our lives? And in verse 58, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so he says, therefore, you need in life, you need to be steadfast, you need to be immovable, you need to continue to labor for God in hope. And, and, and Paul's saying when trouble comes upon you, when life becomes difficult, when the doctor report does not come back with welcome news, when life is full of distress and, and, and trouble and difficulty and hardship, be immovable. Be steadfast. Be, continue to labor. In fact, usually what we do when we come to times of difficulty and times of trouble, the typical response is twofold. You, either people are filled with despair, they get crushed, they don't, they, they come undone. They don't know how they're going to endure the hardship in front of us. There is one reaction, which is despair. The other reaction is defiance. The other reaction is I'm going to stiffen my upper lip. Nothing's going to get to me. I'm going to strengthen my will. We call that willpower. And I'm just going to push on through. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. And we, I'm just going to push on through. And so there's either despair or defiance when hardship comes. The Bible tells us to do neither. The Bible says, don't look at yourself or, or your sorrow, but look to Jesus. Have hope. He says, fill your mind with hope, with truth, because of the resurrection. Therefore, be immovable. Don't look at your sorrow and be filled with despair or look at yourself and say, I will defy this. Look at Jesus and hope. 
Think about what Christ has done. Fill your mind with the majestic realities and truth of Christ. Let that overflow into your heart. That your will might be strengthened. That it might be immovable. Look beyond yourself to Jesus. Tim Keller, when he preached on this passage, he has this wonderful illustration of from uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And there is a character named Sam in that story. And Sam is in a very difficult place and having a very difficult time. And Sam begins with defiance. I think most of us begin with defiance. He says, I, I could do this. I'm going to push through. Nothing's going to get me. I, I could be strong. And he realizes that's not working. Things are not getting better. And Sam quickly goes from defiance to despair. And he is undone. And he just wants to die. And life is going very poorly. And then, and then finally Sam sees something. And Tolkien writes, He crawled from the hiding place and looked out. The land seemed full of creaking and cracking and sly noises. There peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tower, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. As he looked up, out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him for like a shaft clear and cold the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing there was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach his song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope for then he was thinking of himself Now for a moment his own fate ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself down. And putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. You see, in his despair, he received hope. A hope that pierced his thought, his heart. A thought that pierced him that in the end the shadow is only a small and passing thing. And in the end there is light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. We need something outside of us. To give us hope. We need truth to sustain us. Therefore, because of the resurrection, be steadfast. Don't look at yourself in the midst of hardship. Don't look, just don't stare at the hardship and be filled with despair. Look to the resurrection until it pierces you. Then you'll be immovable and triumphant, even in difficulty. Let Christ give you strength. Well, a few months after Adoniram buried his wife Anne, His infant daughter, Maria, followed her mother in death. He wrote to his mother-in-law, who had now lost her daughter and her granddaughter. He wrote, Dear Mother Hasseltine, My sweet little Maria lies by the side of her fond mother. The complaint to which she was subject several months proved incurable. She had the best medical advice, and the kind care of Mrs. Wade could not have been in any respect exceeded by that of her own mother. But all of our efforts, prayers, and tears could not propitiate the cruel disease. She ceased to breathe on the 24th at 3 o'clock p.m., aged two years and three months. And we folded her little hands, the exact pattern of her mother's, on her cold breast. The next morning, we made her last bed in the small enclosure which surrounds her mother's lonely grave. Together they rest in hope. And together I trust their spirits are rejoicing after a short separation of precisely six months. Thus, I am left alone in the wide world. For my own dear family, I have buried. What remains for me? 
but to hold myself in readiness to follow the dear departed. Death is our enemy. You know that. I know that. The Bible knows that. It is therefore right to be angry at death. But for the Christian, it's never right to be afraid of it. For it one day will be defeated. You see, brothers and sisters in Christ, our Lord has been raised, and He is coming again. And one day, death will itself die. For you note verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ will come and He'll kill it once and for all, and death shall be no more. It shall be taken from us forever, our last enemy defeated. And so I tell you once again this morning, Happy Easter. Our Lord has died. Our Lord has risen. Our Lord has ascended. Our Lord is ruling. And one day our Lord is coming back to right every wrong and defeat every enemy. May He win our hearts today and forevermore. Our Father, we thank You for our Lord and for His goodness. We thank You that He is alive. We thank You that all that opposes us, namely, especially death, one day shall be removed from this world forever as we rejoice in the Kingdom of God. We believe that Christ has begun this work. That Christ has been raised. He is the first fruits of all who will follow Him. And so we rejoice. We thank You that we are forgiven, that Christ has paid for our sin, that it is taken away. We rejoice that we will live forever and we rejoice that we can have victory even in this life because of the work of Jesus. Please, Father, will You help Your people, Your children, to be motivated and compelled and even changed because of these truths. And Father, will You help the lost today? Those who are here, those whom You have made, those whom You hold together, those You have created in Your image, those whom You dearly love. Will they turn from themselves, Father, and to receive Christ as their Lord, that they too may know You as their Father? Will you do this for your great glory and for their eternal gain, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.